yeah, and his word to give order to it all. Right. So. All right, it's nine o'clock. Wonderful. I'm going to start my little timer. And uh, open us up in a word of prayer. Let folks get settled here. So let me do that now. So, Father, we just uh, thank you so much for the privilege to come before you in the community of the saints and, and just lift up your beloved son, lift up this time of worship and edification and fellowship and Lord, we just pray that you would guard our hearts and our minds and that we would just exalt you, Lord, as we endeavor to just paint this tapestry you've given us of your redemptive work. And Lord, may we just praise you and honor you all the way through it and do that in your precious name, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So... I want to just kind of uh, just calibrate us a little bit to where we are. I know my studies kind of seem to be like the Chia Pet we talked about, but uh, we started just before Christmas, as you recall. Uh, we had been coming down into Romans 128 through 32, um, and Christmas came upon us, and we, we took a little detour because what we saw, what we've seen through this study all along, is that God is actively working in, in really two separate constituencies, right? Those that walk according to the flesh and those that walk according to the Spirit, as Romans 8 lays that out. Um, and they're moving in completely, distinctly contrary directions, and that is foretold and forewarned and characterized throughout Scripture um, from Genesis 3.15 right on through, this war that we, we face, right? Um, and much of that war, as we spend so much time about the mind, occurs right up here. How, what you think is a function of your heart and your belief in the Scriptures, if, in fact, you have the Spirit of God who authored those scriptures, <laughs> and that thinking, right thinking, then shapes your desires, your motives, and begins to work its way out into our lives and our behaviors of obedience. Um, and uh, we, we moved through all of that, and as we came on to Christmas, I really wanted to kind of take another one of these uh, off-ramps or up-ramps into the, just the, the grandeur of the redemptive work of our Lord and this wondrous tapestry that we've been given. And, and one of the great desires I have when I teach um, is, is to kind of take us and just kind of expand our minds to the much broader, this tapestry works very well, this tapestry um, that tells this wondrous story uh, that each scene in the tapestry has its own story, but it is when you can tie them all together appropriately that it just begins to take on this beautiful, beautiful picture of what our Lord is doing, what our triune God is doing. So we talked about the incarnation of our Lord before Christmas. We then came back on New Year's and we talked about just the redemptive work of Christ and the intimacy and the particularity at which Christ spoke of his people. 
very specific, his people, as we studied last week. Today, we're, we're really going to move to, as we opened last week, let me, let me just read that. Um, we've been looking at these truths from where we were redeemed. And as we've learned, it was right off of that wide road, that wide gate, this downward slide of Romans 1. Snatched off and moved in a completely different direction so that we could then go and look at to whom we have been redeemed by, and that was Christ and his incarnation and his continuing work. And from whom we have been redeemed from. And that's something people just don't really understand rightly. And just to make it proper, look at Romans 5.9. If you ever want to ask, from where and from whom have I been saved? And if you have an inkling in your mind or whoever you're discipling or evangelizing has an inkling in their mind that they're just kind of good and they're just seeking after God to add to that goodness, this passage should help immensely. Help us understand why we need Christ, right? Romans 5, 9 says, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, We'll get into that in Romans 3. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God, which is the sanctifying work that we get into Romans 4 through 7 and 8, right? Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more... Sorry, let me back up a little bit. Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have been now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That, I almost missed the section that I went to this passage for. We're saved from the wrath of God. Not Satan, not this, not that. We are saved from the wrath of God upon us. Very important to help us understand how magnificent it is that they have flung us like they have flung us in this, in this work that they are doing. And this morning's study, and I don't know if it's going to spill into next week a little bit, but this morning's study is really focused on to what purpose have we been redeemed? Where's this all going? What is their purpose in it? And I think that, that this will open up just, just a beautiful picture of why we're exhorted all the, throughout the, certainly the New Testament scriptures, to just set our minds on things that are above, because they are absolutely glorious when you begin to unpack them. Now, this passage uh, we're coming to as a stopping point to get back to Romans, so we could spend the next 17 sessions on this passage. I think you all will know that. But I want to start first with a thought 
Galatians teaches us that God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. Believer, unbeliever, everybody. We will reap what we sow, and we know that that principle just works through everything, right? Spiritual, physical, agriculturally, right? But it occurred to me... (laughs) As certain as that reaping and sowing is, particularly in our temporal lives, there's one instance for sure that we will not reap what we sowed. Isn't there? Why? Because Christ reaped it for us. Think about that. That principle of life that God has given all of creation, he disrupted with his beloved son so that we would not reap what we have sowed throughout the course of our entire life. Isn't that just a wondrous thought to exalt our Lord through? I'm going to give you a little bit of the punchline. Second Corinthians 5.21, you know well, he, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. There it is, right? But they did it, as we looked at in John 17 and John 10, and we're going to see it in 1 Corinthians 15. Not because the triune God in their solitariness were needful. They were perfectly content. If you haven't read Pink's work on the contentment of the triune God before all of creation, it's really good. (laughs) They were perfectly content. So why in the world did they put themselves through what we have put them through? I hope that you'll see that answer quite clearly. But let me start with Galatians 4, 1 through 7, as we begin to work our way through this consummation of what they have purposed from before the foundation of the world. And that's what we're going to look at today, the consummation. Okay? But I thought Galatians 4, 1 through 7 does a, quite a good job of describing much of what we've been teaching all the way through these 18 sessions so far. And it says that, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. Do you see where Paul's going? (laughs) This is the unsaved Ryan living his sinful life who doesn't have a clue what is about to hit him. And what is about to hit him is the love of the Father that he might be redeemed by the Son and made part of that family eternal. And every one of us can find ourselves in this passage if we truly know the Lord. It's beautiful. 
the date set by the Father. So look where Paul goes. In the same way, we also, so there's why I can say what I just said, right? I, I always follow Paul or the Lord or James or John. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. That's why we were under the wrath of God. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent his, forth his son, born of woman, very important as we see these passages unpacked, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And when we get to the bottom of this 1 Corinthians 15, you'll see why this passage just flows so beautifully. Under the law, so that we might receive what? That word should be just precious to us. Because we weren't just orphans wandering. We were orphans under the most ruthless parent, Satan. You are of your father, the devil. He was a liar, slanderer, murderer from the start. That was our family. <laughs> and we, we only know that because Scripture teaches it. We wouldn't come up with that, would we? It's one of the ways that Scripture just validates itself so beautifully. We would never write this this way. Never, right? Couldn't even think of it, let alone hold it all together in such a beautiful tapestry. Now look at, just look where Paul goes. Because I, you don't hear a whole lot about Paul's family, do you? Like, nothing. You see a man who was just absolutely, singularly devoted to his Lord. Right? But you know that that uh, knock off the high horse for a man who was on the jet set to being at the top of the system of Judaism really upset some people who had invested their lives into that man's life. Right? And he was absolutely orphaned, I am sure, from this world, praise the Lord, like the rest of us. which I, I just can't imagine how sweet these words must have been to him as they are to us, so that we might receive adoptions as son. And because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, that river of living water. That's why you can't sit there and just not say it, right? <laughs> you can't let it bubble out. You can't. It's the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The sweet, intimate, there's that intimacy that we saw all the way through John 10 and John 17. This is how our triune God sees us now. And thankfully, even when we don't, right? So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God a fellow heir of all that the Son, beloved Son, has accomplished. Beautiful, isn't it? 
Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, before we enter into this 1 Corinthians passage. Here we are. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that Gadarene, just go tell them what I did for you. Go tell them where you were and where you are now and tell them about your heart and your love for me. Right? So great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay, let us also lay aside every weight. There's the exhortation for us. And sin, which clings so closely. There's the old man that we brought with us in some ways, at least his behaviors. That sin that clings so closely. Aren't you glad that Scripture frees you of the conscience that says, I'm not a sinner? Or at least I'm not as bad as, right? It just shreds that. The sin that clings so closely, the worst kind of sin, right? They've written books about it. Those secret, acceptable sins. Many of them are flourishing in the visible church, are they not? Yeah. Yep, go ahead. Mm-hmm. They're, they're somewhat synonymous. The, the loaded, their conscience is loaded with sin. The, the, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a few other passages. But it's also, Tina and I were just talking about this this morning, actually. Do you see this world kind of uh, spinning a little bit wobbly right now? For some, it's, it's really, really spinning fast and wobbling. If, if we're not the stewards we're called to be, but yet continuing to hold loosely the things of this world, we are wobbling big time with it as well, aren't we? And does that not begin to get carried around as part of that worry curve that we're on? When God has been explicit in his scripture that this place is going to a place that you're not. But yet we carry some of that around. When I look at it and think about my kids and I think about the next generation, I think that's part of that weight, right? Be wise and discerning, but know that the days are evil. Hold it loosely, right? But here's the, really the weight and sin analogy, Ron, is, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is Peter pulling up the loose ends. This is John getting rid of all the excess baggage. This is the narrow gate, like a turnstile, only room for you. Don't bring all that junk to this race, right? Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And this is where we need to see him, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, we're gonna, I wanna, we're gonna pull back from the tapestry a bit, and we're gonna look at where all this is going. Right? And that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15. He's addressing a couple of different problems that the church brought to his attention. But he just unpacks 
this beautiful imagery of what God is doing with us and why. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 15, 20. We see this extreme, supreme exaltation of Christ. And you'll see running through this whole passage, the first Adam, who was given all the commandments, who was given the tree of life, he was given everything that the garden had to offer, and he had one prohibition, didn't he? Leave the tree the knowledge of good and evil alone. Just that one thing. And he stood by silently as his wife, being deceived, was deceived. He was already there. Wasn't enough for him. And instead of subduing the world as God had commanded him, because he wouldn't command him if he didn't give him all the power to do it, he ended up underneath the foot of Satan, who is now the ruler of the world that he was supposed to rule over. So you see these two side by side, the first Adam who failed miserably, and the second Adam is what Paul calls him, who accomplished everything that the Father had for us to accomplish, humanity. And that's much of the motif that sits in this passage. So let's just kind of work our way through this a little bit. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28, let me just read for us, and you'll see this motif. But in fact, Christ has been, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we're talking about the resurrection here. The first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. So think about this. At the center of God's redemptive plan was Christ's cross and resurrection and ascension. That cross saved everybody from the beginning of humanity that was to be saved. And it saved everybody to the end of this age and beyond that will be saved, that one moment in time. That's what Paul's talking about. Therefore, Jesus, being the one who resurrected, conquering death, is the first fruit of all those who will be resurrected and conquer that same death because Jesus has conquered that death on our behalf. That's big part of Paul's point in here. So the resurrection and the death issue and the life beyond death is central to his thinking in this passage. And look at how he just unpacks it, but he unpacks the first Adam who failed to the second Adam who is exalted for a reason, so that we will exalt the second Adam and not put our trust in man. One of our biggest challenges today. Verse 21, For as by a man came death, By a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And there's the one that failed and the one that succeeded perfectly. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And you can go a couple of ways with who that all is, right? Because some will be resurrected unto eternal life. 
All the rest will be resurrected unto eternal death that never dies. Right? But each in his own order, our meticulous God, right? Christ, the first fruits, because it was purposed and determined and decreed from before the foundation of the world, therefore it was. He was the first fruit of Adam, of Eve, of Abel, of Noah, right on through the line. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. How can we say he's not coming back? Then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. And this is the consummation of this age, this church age. And the beginning of our eternity with our triune God. When then comes the end, when he, now pay attention to this, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, Right? Here it is. Father, here is the consummation of everything you gave me to do. Here they all are. Look at the way, with that thought, look at the way Paul unpacks this passage. Not that we are precious but we are precious to our triune God. And Paul just makes it beautifully clear. As technical and causal and all that Paul is, you can see just the intimate love that he has for our triune God as he unpacks it in here. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. What's he doing? He's unfolding Genesis 3.15 for us in real life over the course of humanity. He's putting every enemy under his feet and it is material to the consummation when he takes the kingdom. It's complete back and he gives it to the Father who gave it to him. The, the doctrine of election is one that is as controversial in the church as you can get. But if you don't understand the doctrine of election, you have to wipe this passage away. You can't make sense of it. Nor can you make sense of John 17. Those are the passages that real, reveal this undeserved, intimate reach into humanity that consummates itself in this beautiful unfolding that Paul's given us right here. Until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And this is what I want you to see in verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection, subjection under him. And he's talking about the Father and the Son and the equal within the, the equality within the triune God, but the order that also exists. Because the Son was perfectly obedient to the Father 
in all of this work, which is, by the way, part of our example. Being conformed to who? Christ. That's our sanctification. Look at verse 28, and this is just glorious. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. What's he saying? Not until the very last elect is redeemed will God be in his eternal decrees complete he is complete he was content but in a sense that Paul's given us here until that last elect is redeemed they are incomplete because Christ is incomplete because his bride is incomplete the last elect and the glorification and purification of his beautiful bride. That's what Paul is setting up here. This is where this is going. And this is why it is absolutely certain that it will come about. Exactly. Exactly. It's where all, the, all those beautiful passages just kind of get swept up into this beautiful certainty, right? That's the wellspring. The, the, your, your heart and those treasured passages, that this is why. <laughs> Let me just detour Hebrews 2.14 with you. You don't have to go there. I'll read it for you, but you can if you want. Since therefore, Hebrews 2.14, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. Think Genesis 3.15 right on through. That is the devil. The devil is very real. Satan is very real. He is doing exactly what God has allowed him to do with those who have rejected God. Now there's a fearful thought. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. I know this vividly from my Roman Catholic life. If you've ever been to a Roman Catholic funeral, it is the most horribly sad event you will ever experience if you understand why it is that way. Because there is no hope. There is no certainty. Death is now ushered in the long, you know, who knows what as to whether or not you're actually going to end up in heaven or hell. Totally obliterates this passage, right? Christ has conquered death by his resurrection. And that's what Paul is revealing to us. Dr. MacArthur says this about this beautiful passage. From the time of his incarnation until the time when he presents the kingdom to the Father, Christ is in the role of a servant, fulfilling his divine task as assigned by his Father. 
But when that final work is accomplished, he will assume his former full glorious place in the perfect harmony of the Trinity. And when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, that God may be all in all. They are complete. And again, in a very real sense, until the last elect is redeemed, they are not finished. They're working. They're continuing to work. And as Paul will tell us, just as we should, right? So here we begin to build a little bit on the first Adam and the second Adam and what it means to still be part of the first Adam and not part of the second Adam and then also part of the second Adam. And it is beautiful. Look at the contrast that you see. Go to verse 42 of 1 Corinthians 15. And we'll read through 49. So it is. With the resurrection of the dead, so Paul is continuing down this theme, what is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. So he's talking about the believer here. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Think of Jesus after the resurrection. I think that back will feel a little bit better. These passages are hope for those who have chronic issues. Chronic challenges. Praise God for sure. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, just exalting and contrasting the two. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual, what Jesus tried to teach Nicodemus. The Nicodemus couldn't understand at all. He couldn't even see the kingdom from where he was standing. Why? Because he was standing in self-righteous religion, not Christ, not the entire unfolding plan of God that was perfectly clear in Nicodemus's scriptures. He had Isaiah 53. <laughs> the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Verse 48. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust, and is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Now remember the restoration that takes place when we're yanked off of that downward slide of Romans 1? What are they doing? They're restoring us back. Let us make them in our image after our likeness. They yank us and they begin a process of restoring us right back to where we started. What Paul says right here. Just as we have been born 
the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven, which is why Romans 12, 1 and 2 is such an important passage. It's, it's the first passage Paul gets to after 11 chapters of theology, what God has done. He comes to verse 12, uh, chapter 12 and turns to what we should do. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be conformed to Christ, right? Let me read 49 again. Just as we have been, we have borne the image of the man of dust, we also bear the image of the man of heaven. Now, with this idea of death, and as we move to verse 50 through 58, I gotta keep digging to find out who the author of this is, but I just couldn't help but read it to you. Let me just read it. There is a preacher of the old school, but he speaks as boldly as ever. He is not popular, though the world is his parish, and he travel, travails every part of the globe and speaks in every language. He visits the poor, calls upon the rich, preaches to people of every religion and no religion, and the subject of his sermon is always the same. He is an eloquent preacher, often stirring feelings which no other preacher ever could, and bringing tears to the eyes that never weep. His arguments none are able to refute nor is there any heart that has remained unmoved by the force of this appeal. He shatters life with his message. Most people hate him. Everyone fears him. And his name? Death. That's the way the old-timey saints used to write. His name is death. It's the fear that every unbeliever on this planet has, whether they reveal it or not. This preacher's preaching to them because they see death all around them. Every tombstone is his pulpit. Every newspaper prints his text. And someday, Every one of you will be in his sermon. Now, <laughs> with that in mind, let's turn to 1 Corinthians 15:50 and continue this beautiful look at where we are going. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable. And what Paul's saying after all the passage we've just looked at is you need to be resurrected. Not with this body, but with something entirely and perfectly fitted for what God is doing with his family, right? Behold, I tell you a mystery, good way to get his, everybody's attention. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, right? Uh, what he's saying is those who were asleep and those who were not asleep at the time 
all of you are going to be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, right? The eye is the fastest, most comprehensive, most amazing thing on this planet. If you've ever studied the eyeball. And it moves as fast. You can't measure how fast it moves, right? I can look at Grady and it focuses on Grady, but then I can move to Tina and it focuses on Tina and I don't even think about it. The twinkling of an eye. That fast is what Paul's talking about. First Thessalonians 4.17 is the passage that this crosses over with. In the twinkle of an eye, at the last trumpet, I love that, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. You just have to think about that moment, that flash of humanity when that's going to take place. Because we are really close to this consummation that Paul's talking about. It's just wondrous, isn't it? Verse 53, For the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on mortality, immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the thing saying that is written. Now remember death. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? I love the way Paul unpacks this. The sting of death, it's sin. Every believer, every one of us, every time we sin, should immediately hear the wages of sin is death. That's the prick to the conscience. That should say your creator and your Lord and Savior redeemed you from the very sin that I just pricked your conscience over. The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law because it convicts us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And we're seeing more and more what lawlessness begins to look like, don't we? The restraint and the work of the law is a gift from God. That when it is removed, as we see in Romans 1, when we return. And 2 Thessalonians 2. All hell breaks loose on this planet. In this heart. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. <laughs> the trumpet sounds, and there's something else that marks this time too as we move into the millennial reign. Look at Luke twenty-two eighteen with me for a minute. Luke twenty two eighteen says, For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. 
So that trumpet will blow. The rapture, the return of Christ, the millennial reign, all the things David has been teaching us about the centrality of Jerusalem and Israel in the world, and the restarting, and Jesus will finally drink from the fourth cup, which he withheld. I will not drink of it again until I return to you. So the trumpet blows and the fourth cup gets poured and we all say, Amen. So let's take a look at what this looks like. On the divine side, we see Ephesians 2.10 as it relates to this work that Paul's talking about from verse 58. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God's good works that are our good works always occur on the saved, saved side of the cross. If they are on the unsaved side of the cross, you are not saved, and you are trying to save yourself with works. But on the saved side of the cross, we have this beautiful passage, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. And here's what the saint sees. Go to Colossians 1, 3. <laughs> and let's just look at the heart of Paul and all believers and look at how Wonderfully, this passage just sweeps everything we've been talking about up into it. We always thank God, the Father. I'm in Colossians 1, 3, and I'm going to read through 14. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I love that salutation. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, getting the whole Trinitarian God in there. When we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, the mark of the church, the true church, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, and there it is. Why does the church behave like the church when she behaves like the church? Because of the hope laid up for us in heaven. Think about this. Think about how many wounds are on the body of Christ because of the body of Christ to this very moment. How many divisions? How many brothers and sisters in Christ won't talk to each other? How many have split here and they've split there? Do you think that any of those wounds will not be healed, cleaned up, and eliminated before we enter the eternal worship of our Lord? Every one of them will be cleaned up, closed. And I think in a very real sense, Paul's saying, just start now. Just start now. Be the one body. Beautiful. Of this you have heard before the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed the whole world 
and is bearing fruit and increasing. There's Ephesians 2.10, what God is doing. It is also, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The very day you heard it and believed, you began that work. Just as you learned from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit because Paul just wanted to hear how his people were doing. He loved. It was, it was part of the lifeline, part of the fruit of his life. And so from the day we heard it, verse 9, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled. Here it is. Ever want to know how to pray? Here it is. Asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right? You see the... the the, the studies, the personal studies, the application, the bearing fruit, the stepping out, the witnessing, the discipling, it all just whirls its way up to walking in a manner worthy of such a gracious Lord, which will then be part of how the Spirit of God draws those that are being saved but don't even know it to the body of Christ. Because we too get to partake in this building up of a family of God. In his divine prerogative. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, now listen to this, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Here comes the snatch off of Romans 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. You're already there. You're already there in God's eternal time. In whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sin. So we'll come back next week and we're going to go take a look at what's going on in heaven via Romans 8. And you'll notice that, that, that much of this study, we could really build an outline of Romans and all of it would hang in the outline of Romans because Romans is, as is stated by so many, the most comprehensive understanding of what God has done that we could ever find. So far as to say that someone asked if you had, you know, one book <laughs> besides your Bible.